0: 36 whoop, whoop. F- featuring <laughs> our third guest ha! <laughs> everybody welcome kelsey mckinnis hello she has very graciously agreed to tune in from northern california to help me
1: record our 36 episode i am super excited i was actually like waiting Anxiously, for my opportunity to be on the show. <laughs> I'm like, so Melissa, you're uh, taking guest hosts now, huh?
0: <laughs> well, luckily, we have a lot of open slots because, as I had mentioned in our last episode with Brad, this uh, podcast basically has no end in sight as long as women are alive. <laughs> I like it. So, I could be doing this till I'm 85 and there could be like
1: I don't know 2000 episodes before I die. Well, I thought that I had my person chosen and then I actually ended up switching it. So, that means I already have someone on deck. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> so, you just let me know when you're ready. <laughs> All
0: right. Well, I'll let you know. Um, so for anyone out there wondering who the hell Kelsey is, <laughs> Her and I actually um, met in San Francisco when we went to San Francisco State University. I think it was probably 2007 that we met. That is correct. I always tell people that we were roommates, (laughs) which we were for a very, very, very long time. Yes. But um, we didn't officially meet as brand new roommates at SF State. We, I think I was on like the second floor and you were on the sixth floor. Yes. And then like six months into my residency on the second floor, Mm -hmm. I moved out with my mattress and moved (laughs) into the floor of Kelsey's dorm room on the sixth floor.
1: Yeah. And And there were not two, not three, but four of us living in that Sweet little 12 by 12 dorm room. <laughs> yes. And my
0: mattress was on the floor and I slept underneath your bed. And then when it wasn't nighttime, I think we like pushed my mattress all the way underneath to bring back the floor space. And then we pulled it back up when it was bedtime. It was so a tight squeeze. We made it work. We got to know each other very well at the raw age of 18. Yeah, we sure did. <laughs> and then we lived together Every single year since until yeah. I left San Francisco, right? I think I was 25. Yeah, was it 2013 that you left? In 2014.
1: 2014. Yeah. Yeah. So, it was a long run. There was a point I think in like one year we lived in three different apartments.
0: Yeah, and not all by <laughs> not all by choice either. Certainly. Um, but I think the worst living arrangement we probably had was in our super, like, dark vampire cave of a sublet.
1: Yes. There where... was a lot of bad experiences out there.
0: <laughs> where the bedroom was, like, a typical normal-sized bedroom. However, we both had, I think, full-size mattresses at the time, and we shared the bedroom, and we had, I think, only a cup width of space yes. between our
1: mattresses. But may I remind you, it wasn't the first time that we had lived in that style. <laughs> Because in our Park Merced bedroom, we had the same setup. And if you remember, we both had like the wide but short dressers. And my grandpa had to come to stack them on top of each other and safely (laughs) drill them to the walls so they didn't fall and kill us. (laughs) So we had pretty much a wall of dresser. I don't even know how we got to the top shelf because it must have been like six feet high.
0: A wall of dresser and a floor of bed. (laughs) Yes.
1: Yeah. We really, we really maximized our space.
0: And luckily, um, all these years later, we finally have our own rooms. Me, I have my own house. So we've, we've made, we've made progress over the You leveled up for sure. I mean, I still live in a cave, but at least I'm in it alone. So you, so Kelsey still lives in San Francisco, but today she is in San Rafael um, doing a little house sitting in a nice, beautiful, giant, rich person's house where she has all the freedom <laughs> and silence and space to
1: record this episode. Yeah. And lots of animals hanging out with me. Nice! Which is the are, best part. Are we going to hear any barkers tonight? I don't know. They're actually, like, the most chill animals I've ever met in my life. Nice. There's two cats and two dogs, and the dogs actually, like, willingly just go to their beds and sleep. Um, they're both in their beds right now. Are um, they old? Um, I don't think they're that old. One of them, the pit bull, does snore a lot. So you could hear some snoring. <laughs> but... <laughs> I think that's the, the worst we're going to get.
0: Okay, cool. Um, well, are you drinking any wine?
1: Oh, I am drinking wine. Oh, right, I just made oh. an awful screeching sound dragging my wine across the counter. I'm drinking a red wine today. It's a pretty nice wine glass. Well, I'm at a rich person's house. <laughs> <laughs> so today I am drinking um, one of my favorite brands of wine from the grocery outlet, you love the grocery outlet. I fucking love the grocery outlet, and I came on to make a pitch for not only the grocery outlet, but also this great wine app that I've been using. So, KB, who is a friend of ours, um, you know, is what you might call a wine connoisseur, right? She loves wine. I know very little bit about wine, either, like, I like it or I don't, and that's it. Um, I do enjoy it, but I don't really like it get into it quite like that. And KP herself has acknowledged that I have amazing luck at the grocery outlet. I always <laughs> pick the best wines. And it is because my strategy is to see which wine was formerly the most expensive. Have so it will show you the two prices? Yeah, it'll be like three ninety nine. And then it's like was eighteen ninety nine. Oh. I do usually ball out on like the six or seven dollar bottles. But um <laughs> <laughs> $70. I look at the ones that have the biggest price differential, right? So there could be like a $7 one that was nine ninety nine, or like a $7 one that was $22. I'm like, that's the one I want. So that's my strategy. Usually it works. Uh-oh. Today I'm drinking a Passages Pinot Noir and I actually did not use my price analysis on this bottle. I have bought it previously. Oh. And so I knew that it was one that I liked. But I will say, I've also started to use this app called Vivino. Are you familiar? No. Because I think you need to get on it. Um, you scan a bottle, like in the grocery store, and most often it recognizes them. I've maybe had a couple that it didn't. And it gives you a rating and like reviews of... The bottle interesting so i use it at the grocery outlet and i will say that today just before our podcast i used it on my passages bottle that is marked as being 18.99 regularly priced at the grocery outlet and it said that the average price reported was 9.99 wow so i'm a little bothered <laughs> that <laughs> the grocery outlet was $9. grocery yeah. outlet is has been deceiving me <laughs> and now i'm pissed But I still like the passages, Pinot Noir.
0: Okay, I have, like, several comments
1: to make (laughs) on this entire thing. Can you tell I rehearsed that? I was like, okay, these are all the things I'm going to (laughs) tell Melissa about the wine. that She needs to know that.
0: So first, first comment is I am honestly shocked and dying that KB, somebody who's, like, a total wine connoisseur and has, like, Doesn't she like have like wine winery memberships and like wine club? Like she has like eighty five
1: thousand wine bottles in that. She has (laughs) yes, you saw them last time. You slept amongst (laughs) them. (laughs) There was barely room for you in the guest room.
0: Yeah, to think that somebody at her level of wine bougie would even admit that you have great grocery outlet wine selections.
1: So, but that's the thing. Grocery outlet is known for having great wine and beer deals. Wow. So you got to like, you know, there's shit stuff there too, which there is everywhere, but they actually do have good stuff. You know, I don't think we
0: have a grocery outlet down here.
1: I went to a grocery outlet up here in Novato, and it was so much fucking nicer than the shithole by my house in San Francisco.
0: Well, we don't have any grocery outlet here. To my knowledge, I've never seen one.
1: Well, the grocery outlet's a couple blocks from my house and my roommates I just moved. They call it the gross out. (laughs) That's the name. The
0: gross out? The
1: gross out. Like the grocery outlet. The gross out. (laughs) Anyways, I totally just derailed and hogged that uh, no, wine review. No, completely
0: fine. <laughs> it's completely fine. That's how, that's how the
1: episodes go. So now I need to hear what you are sipping on over there.
0: Okay, so um, I went even lower class than the grocery outlet um, where I had to stop and get gas on my way home today. And I knew I wouldn't have time to stop at like a good place for a good (laughs) bottle of wine. So I had to go to the Chevron wine. Gas station wine. (laughs) Amazing. But I actually ended up with a very good bottle. So I was lucky because I only had three options. I had I thought you were gonna say you only
1: had (laughs) three (laughs) dollars.
0: Three options. I had a garbage-ass Chardonnay, which I'll never drink. And then I had a barefoot Pinot Grigio, which I've literally consumed, like, at least three thousands of those bottles in my uh-huh. lifetime. So I'm like, I can't do the podcast dirty yeah. and review that shitty wine. And then the third option was this uh, Starboro Sauvignon Blanc New Zealand wine.
1: Ooh. And
0: it's the bomb.com. Oh, I like the bottle. I know. It's very, like, seashell-y. Yeah. I feel like we're about to go surfing. I love it. Um, I like the ombre. Yeah, it's ombre out. <laughs> um, but it's a 2018 Sauvignon Blanc, and I always love the soves from New Zealand. Um, almost more than the, like, Australian kind. All right. Um, but it's super bomb, and it has a very crisp, appley, peachy fruit flavor. That sounds great. But the problem is that when I get a good wine on the podcast, you drink I it tend all. to drink it all.
1: I have mentally prepared myself to drink this entire <laughs> bottle of wine. So, <laughs> I will be there with you and that's why I got this giant glass. I love it. It's <laughs> called a Bordeaux glass. Oh. Tonight it's a Pinot Noir glass.
0: Fuck yeah. <laughs> okay, so should we start?
1: Yeah. Let's Did do you, it.
0: do you have, do you want me to go first to ease it in? <sighs> is it in? Gosh, I don't know. I mean, I can go first. Okay.
1: You can go first. Okay. I was like, I didn't know if I should go, if I just want to like go get it over with, but I think I'll get a little more wine in me. Yeah. And then I'll Get go. some
0: more wine in you. <laughs> um, and that will make when it's time for you to go much more seamlessly. Okay. <laughs> Um, okay. So I picked somebody today that I think you would really like. Ooh. So my selection, I always like, especially now that I have guests, like I always like I feel like it's so foreign for people to just hop on a podcast one day and start recording out of the fucking blue. Mm-hmm. Cause it totally is. Yes. <laughs> so I'm like, how can I make this more seamless? So I'm starting, which I didn't do this until Brad. Um, But I'm starting to try and pick people that I think will resonate with the guest to kind of just, like, help assist conversation and make it more seamless. And so I think you're going to like this person, not because you have, like, a personal relation to what she does, but because I feel like she's very outdoorsy. Oh, okay. And you're into very (laughs) outdoorsy things. I love it. And I feel like this is a hobby, that you could potentially love if you decided at one point in time to pursue oh, it.
1: Wow. My yeah. my ears have perked.
0: <laughs> so I'm going to give a little bit. Of, I'm just going to say who my woman is today. Okay. Give a small little tiny description of who she is because I have no doubt you won't know who she is. And then I'm going to tell you why I'm covering her. Okay. And then I'm going to go into her story. Okay. I'm so, ready. So. Today, I'm covering a woman named Lynn Hill, and she is recognized as one of the best female rock climbers in the world, oh. and considered the world's most accomplished sports climber during the 80s and the 90s, winning over 30 international titles, including five victories, and she is recognized
1: as helping pave the way for female climbers. Wow. Wow. I am excited. And I saw you've been doing some climbing I there, know,
0: already. which is why.
1: <laughs> I love so it.
0: Now I'm going to tell you about why I picked her. So okay. my boyfriend used to rock climb a lot when he was younger, and he's trying to, like, get back into it because it was something that he really, really loved and for whatever reason, like, lost touch with it mm-hmm. and, like probably, you know, is missing that hobby that he loved so much. So he's been getting back into the rock climbing gym and he gets a guest pass like once a month. Right. So I only get to go once a month (laughs) (laughs) for free at least. Hell yeah. But I've been able to go a couple of times with him and I am really liking it a lot. So we just go to, like, a generic rock climbing gym, but they have, like, two different uh, options of rock climbing. One is called bouldering, where Mm -hmm. you just have, like, you know, a little, like, little rock sort of fixture that has little handholds on them and you climb up. And then there's the giant wall where you can, like, belay on a rope and climb. And so I've tried out both, and I think I like bouldering a lot more. But it's such a cool activity because it's like obviously not only fitness and act like active related Mm -hmm. but it's very mental yeah and like strategy and it's also almost like puzzle pieces in a sense which I think like not a lot of sports have that element of it and so I think I've found that really fun about it is like kind of combining the physical activity with like the mental strategy and then um it also works out the most insane muscles that I don't think people typically ever use, unless they're rock climbing,
1: like these ones. Yeah, like I mean, Why don't I don't even know what those are called.
0: I do like a lot of different <laughs> sports and physical activities, but yeah. after one, after my first rock climbing experience, I was feeling some of the most intense, <laughs> just like sore muscles in areas I didn't even know I had. And I was, like, thinking, like, fuck, this is pretty cool, like, to be working these parts of the body that I've literally never worked in the 30 years I've been alive. I don't know. There was something about that that I was like, I think we're supposed to be doing this. So anyway, that's why. Okay, so then that brings me to part two. So now that he's getting super back involved, we now have to watch, like, every single rock climbing (laughs) documentary on the face of the earth. One of being a documentary that's called Valley Uprising, okay, which is where I learned about Lynn Hill. So I was really lucky to have watched this documentary, which taught me a lot about the history of rock climbing and when it started and how it started and what that community was like. Which, again, brings me back to why I'm talking about this with you, because I think it's going to remind you of a large portion of our lives while living in San Francisco. Oh, Okay. So I shall begin. Bring it on. Now that I've introed for six <laughs> minutes just about my woman. Okay. So Lynn was born in Detroit, Michigan, but she actually grew up in Fullerton, California. Oh. She Fullerton. was the fifth of seven kids. She became a gymnast at age eight, but she disliked the way that girls had to smile and do cutesy little routines on the floor. Um, but she still continued to be a gymnast. And during high school, she became one of the top gymnasts in her state, a skill that eventually contributed to her climbing success, being that she had to conceptualize a series of complex movements and to thrive under pressure. In 1975, her sister took her on her first climbing trip, and she was immediately hooked. But Lynn was only five feet tall and weighing about 100 pounds, However, she had powerful arms and shoulders from being a gymnast, but she also had really small hands that gave her an advantage of slipping her fingers into the tiny nooks of the wall. So even though her size um, brought some challenges later in her life climbing, it was also a huge asset for her um, rather than like other larger, bulkier people that try to climb, rock climb. So as a young teenager, she climbed in Southern California, primarily in Joshua Tree, and she earned money for day trips by working at Carl's Jr. Lynn discovered she was really into bouldering, and she had stated at one point, quote, I discovered the heart of free climbing movement in its purest form. Climbing was beautifully free form and spontaneous, each movement being different from any other. So she took her first trip to Yosemite at age 16, where she was introduced to the climbers at Camp 4, which was a very notable rock climbing hangout. In the summer of 1976 to 78 and the early 1980s, Lynn frequently camped at Camp 4 in Yosemite Valley, becoming a part of the climbing community centered there and joining the search and rescue team. So, about Camp 4. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) This was a place where dozens of the most famous rock climbers in the world had congregated. And they would all live there and camp there and rock climb there so that they could learn from each other and try out new ideas on the Yosemite walls. However, it was literally a campground space That was basically, like, a squatter's village for rock climbers who were considered social outcasts and living like gypsies in Yosemite. Oh, San Francisco. (laughs) (laughs) And what I mean by this is they were full-blown, raggedy and Mm -hmm. basically homeless (laughs) people living out of tents. They didn't pay any camp fees, even Mm -hmm. though this was, like, you know, a national campground where tourists come and like rent out their space with their trailer and have their kids come like frisbee and shit so (laughs) they didn't pay a single camp fee ever they were overstaying their welcome in the park they were getting hammered and raging balls they were living as what people called non-conformists and they were absolutely hated and despised by the park rangers so The crazy thing to me is that, like, when rock climbing as a hobby and sport, like, like, in some capacity was invented, Mm -hmm. it was literally invented by social outcasts that, like, didn't fit in with society, and so they took off to Yosemite to live in the forest, and that was the hobby that they picked up while living out there remotely.
1: That is wild. Was it mostly men out there, or were there other women? Yes. Okay. Like, all fucking Raggedy Ann men. And...
0: Another reason why you came to mind when I learned about Lynn is because in this documentary, there's a lot of really, really awesome video footage of Camp 4 Mm -hmm. in its prime.
1: And it looked like Shakedown Street at a Grateful Dead show. (laughs) That is exactly what I was picturing when you told me about the camp (laughs) lot. (laughs) Or a stroll down hate street. yeah. It it was basically
0: and like the first thing I said was like those people are deadheads like there's like <laughs> absolutely no chance in hell that this isn't a group of deadheads in Yosemite. And
1: so, writing what what time was this now? Like what decade um, or year?
0: In the seventies. Okay. So I think it was like well, so rock climbing started like way before the semi like the seventies, mm-hmm. but. Based off of this documentary that I was watching, like, at least in terms of Yosemite being, like, a massive rock climbing area, that kind of movement kickstarted with these nonconformist gypsies. So, like most nonconformist and outcasts, the park rangers were fucking pissed. (laughs) And they were like, we need to get these disgusting, dirty-ass hippies out of here. But they wouldn't leave. And so during this time period, Lynn was fucking hanging out at camp four and she was (laughs) young. I mean, I think she was only like maybe anywhere from 16 to 18 years old. And at one point she had told the story about how she survived in camp four for like an entire summer on only seventy five dollars. And what the camp floor would do is they would basically, as a community, recycle leftover cans, whether they Mm -hmm. were, like, their own cans from drinking beer or, like, the tourist cans, and they would use that recycling money to buy climbing ropes, and they would literally eat food that was left over from tourists in the campgrounds. Oh, my God. (laughs) Including just, like, straight-up condiments.
1: just a big old packet of ketchup yeah oh god yeah
0: so they were like there was no money and they were just living how off do you even have the had. energy
1: to rock climb like where are the calories to burn if you're eating condiments No clue. <laughs> for no lunch? clue I mean, I don't, and
0: I think like people like Lynn like how it mentioned earlier, like she would work at Carl's Jr. and stuff mm-hmm. and like get up like save up as much money as she could and then head out to Camp Four and like live out there for a while. So I don't know what everybody's situation was like, but I assure I'm sure that some of them were like full-blown homeless and others were like coming yeah. and going. So, another quote from Lynn about this time in her life, she said these dirt poor days were among the best and the most carefree of my life. And though my friends were often scoundrels, I felt their friendship convincingly, <laughs> which I also like reminds me of uh, deadheads. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. as, as you had mentioned, Camp 4 was predominantly male dominated, and there was often pressure on the women there to perform to the men's standards. There was like no real female climbing community. Other than the random women that happened to be interested in rat climbing that Mm -hmm. would hang out at camp four. And they basically like didn't really even have their own female cohort. So they'd kind of just adopt these like masculine attitudes that the other male climbers had. And like Lynn at one point had described her feeling like she was living amongst this like fraternity of men. And she was just, like, this outlier female yeah. that kind of, like, had to be a tomboy to fit in with the vibe that was happening at the camp. But while she was there, she learned the essence of her climbing technique from a group called the Stone Masters, which basically meant um, she, she had, like, a traditional climbing style, which uh, followed these guidelines that you instead of using, like, bolts. So, like, a lot of rock climbers will, like, hammer a bolt Mm -hmm. into a mountain and, like, you know, use that to climb. And then they, like, leave them behind. And so the stone masters, as well as Lynn, didn't believe that that was a good method for the environment. So they sort of, like, I guess adopted these removable, removable protection devices so that they were not leaving behind any, like, trash so to speak or like like kind of like the idea that like you go into the forest and you leave with what you came with and so that was like something that was very very important to her in her climbing career and she also became a dedicated free climber which meant that she would climb an entire route without hanging on any rope or relying on any kind of uh, equipment whatsoever that's terrifying literally just climb up a rock (laughs) Like, wall with just her hands and feet. Oh, my God. Yeah. Uh, No, thanks. (laughs) It's a little gnarly. Yeah. Uh, But that was something that she really loved. So, at age 19, she became the first woman to scale a wall called Ophir Broke in I probably am saying all this wrong. I don't know how to pronounce shit half the time. <laughs> but it looks like it's Ophir oh, Broke, and that was in Telluride, Colorado in okay. 1979. And the accomplishment proved to herself and everyone else that she was more than just a good climber. She had potential to be great. So to finance her climbing lifestyle, Lynn competed in a TV sports competition called Survival of the Fittest, which was a test of athleticism (laughs) over a series of physical challenges. And the grand prize money that she won four years in a row. Holy shit. Financed her lifestyle and she was able to begin traveling and competing in
1: Europe for sport climbing. Four years in a row? That is crazy. Yes. Do you know how much she won? I don't know what the the total amount was, but she won four years in a row. so badass.
0: Yeah, I know. she was pretty gnarly and like another thing to mention which i didn't mention originally in my notes but since it's coming up camp four wasn't just like this big raging party of like dirtbag fucking Mm -hmm. you know degenerates they literally like created their own personal training there and they worked out all the fucking time like and i'm talking like (laughs) like Insane athleticism was happening. That, like, when they weren't climbing, they were just like doing pull-ups and sit-ups and running and like training their bodies so that when they did climb, they had like the most insane strength and ability to conquer these walls that they were climbing. Sounds
1: it's, like, like, they like they were everything they did was like about yeah the goal. Pretty of being much a good climber.
0: So Lynn was just like fucking kicking ass since she was probably. <coughs> Sixteen. So yeah. So then, by the time she was like, you know, living at camp four, getting all swollen shit, climbing all these mountains, then she like hit the reality TV survival of the fittest and just like slayed. Like, four where the years. fuck did this girl come from? Well, and she was a gymnast as a child, yeah. you know, which gym gymnasts are like insanely yoked
1: Yeah. So like, I mean,
0: she has not been fucking around her whole yeah. life with the fitness realm of things. And so, yeah, she won, like, four years in a row. She was able to go to Europe to start doing all these other competitions there, and she continued to win cash prizes in Europe as well. So, early on, when she was younger and a climber, she was pretty much a fearless climber, but after a few death-defying experiences, she learned to be very wary of failing, one of these experiences included a really, really, really terrible mistake that she had made in 1989 while climbing in France with her new husband, who was named Ross Rafa. So she reached the top of a 72 foot sticks wall, or that's what the wall was called in France. And she called down to her husband, Russ, asking him to belay her down the mountain. And when she let go of the wall Mm -hmm. for him to lower her, she just kept falling like at rapid speed. My God. And she crashed through a tree and landed between two boulders. And miraculously, she lived to tell the tale, but had to be helicoptered off of the mountain. Holy shit. What happened? Had he not, like, started to do what he needed to do? No, she didn't do what she needed to do. And that was put like she literally forgot to do the safety knot on her own rope in her own harness oh my god (laughs)
1: yeah and so wild to think too that someone's like that experienced. like this isn't just like a hobby but like this is their life
0: yeah that like that's what they said it's one little thing that
1: you forget that can be like fucking life changing or life your life like that's insane
0: and people were like it was the most amateur move somebody at her level could have ever made which, it's just like, how That's, does yeah. that
1: happen? I have no idea. Maybe you get, like, a little overconfident, I guess. Yeah, I maybe.
0: Forgetful in the moment. Like, like it just kind
1: of becomes, like, routine, so you're not, like, thinking about it as much. Maybe. That's nuts. Yeah.
0: So, luckily, she didn't suffer anything except for a broken ankle and a wow. dislocated arm. Other than, like, a bunch of bumps and bruises. But it took her four months to rehabilitate from her injuries. Oh, wow. And once she was healed, she literally hopped back into the competition in 1989 um, wow. with more wins than any other female climber at that time Holy period. Shit. She got healed. And just a just little just speed bump. Just jumped back into the game and literally just <laughs> won everything. That is crazy. One of these things, um, so, like, the one of the next things that she did after this injury was she competed in the World Cup, uh, which was in Lyon, France, and that was the first time that she, well, she claims that this was the first time that she felt like she finally silenced sexists because she scaled the same difficult course as her male competitors and did it successfully. And she felt like that was the first time in her career that she could finally, like, look at the public in the eye yeah. and be like, go fuck yourself. Like, I deserve to be here and I'm just as good as all these
1: other dudes. Had other had other women competed with men at that level or was she kind um, of, like, trailblazing?
0: I'm not su- I sense. don't know. I'm not 100% sure. I know that there's one very famous rock climber that came even before Lynn, like, I think in the 1940s. But, like... The evolution of rock climbing is insane. Yeah, like it started off with like I mean things that like n- we could never even dream of doing, but like who somebody today would look back and be like, oh really? Yeah, no idea. Yeah. So, so regardless,
1: though, for her it was like monumental.
0: Yeah, it was huge. Um, which that's like again, watching this documentary, it, you really it's it was so like for somebody who literally has never even thought to rock climb in my life. I watched this documentary and was like, holy shit, I just, I never even knew anything about the history of rock climbing yeah. and, like, literally how historical it is, even just culturally. It was so interesting to learn about these different types of people and how they dedicated themselves and all these different milestones the generations took and kept growing. Because, mm. like, the shit people doing are doing today, like, is literally, like, magician stuff. Like, you <laughs> wouldn't even believe it's real. So it's super. It's so cool. You should definitely watch it. Um. So, Lynn ended up. So obviously, like as you've already learned, she's won everything. Beat all of the fucking you know milestones to be best woman ever. Won all the titles, all the money, so on, so on. So she ended up finally giving up rock climbing in 1992. But not to just give up climbing. It's because she decided she wanted to concentrate on often or she wanted to change her focus from rock climbing to like remote climbs in exotic places so instead of like so she was mainly like competing like there was competition and she needed to reach some goal and whatever get it done in this time at this level of difficulty but like she did that she was done with it and now she just wants to be like out in the wilderness and just climbing for fun really So she has done remote exotic climbs in Vietnam, Thailand, Scotland, Kyrgyzstan, Australia, Japan, South America, Italy, and Morocco. And
1: (laughs) she's not fucking around.
0: She's not fucking around. And in 1993, she became the first person to complete a free ascent. Of what was called the nose on El Capitan, which, again, means that she climbed only using her hands and feet, which, like, she was allowed, so it's extremely dangerous, like, basically, especially at this time period, people weren't really doing that, and so extra precaution was being taken which you won't even see today for people that are free climbing there's no precaution it's like free climb and if you lose your grip you're dying like that's basically the only option but when she free climbed the nose she did free climb but she was allowed to take rests at what were called belay stations so when she'd get to that station she could clip onto a rope and like rest chill, chill <laughs> you know like take a breather yeah. like kick back her not be holding on to something
1: for three minutes <laughs>
0: yeah so they did have those belay stations for her um and then she also had a climbing partner that was there who that was belayed up and secured okay. so that if she fell they could potentially like catch her on her way down
1: i mean great but also like <laughs> what's the likelihood of that happening <laughs> I have no idea.
0: So, she did have those two safety options okay. there, but she literally Still going to give it to her. The entire climb, free climb. Um, she got she managed to do the entire thing and she, she climbed sections that had never before been completed without the aid of equipment. Wow. So, she was the first person, not only woman, but person to free climb the nose at El Capitan freestyle. That's dope. Insane. So, as if that wasn't enough, she returned back to that same portion of El Capitan, the nose, the very next year in 1994, and climbed it again in less than a day. Holy shit. (laughs) Which, like, beat her original first record. (laughs) That is insane. So... And I, I tried to look this up more, but according to what I read online, her free ascent of the nose has not been accomplished by any other climber to date. Wow. So I don't know. I mean, there are people that are free climbing insane shit. So I don't know if they just haven't done the nose yet or what. Yeah,
1: I feel like I've heard about people free climbing El Capitan. Yes. Yeah. But maybe, but not that section then.
0: Yeah, there's like a portion of this mountain that, pe- and I think the nose is the edge. It's so like where the mountain kinda like comes to a point. Yeah. You're climbing around the Onto. point. Oh. So the point is like facing yeah. you and it goes that like that. Like kind of like a triangle. So you
1: can't even really see probably like half the shit that you're grabbing. Probably. It's just like not. dexterity and like feeling and Yeah. Being one with a rock.
0: Yeah. I don't know, dude. It's nuts. So, in 1999, she led an all-women climbing team to Madagascar to accomplish a first asset of the 17,500-foot granite wall at Tosaranora Massif, and the route was the most difficult rock climb ever established by a team of women. Lynn eventually became sponsored by North Face and has won over 30 international titles throughout her career. And after 10 years of recording notes about her life, she published her autobiography called Climbing Free, My Life in the Vertical World in 2002. She ended up divorcing her husband, Russ Rafa, who I had mentioned earlier, in 1991 because Lynn wanted children, and I don't think that he did But they also struggled to find time to spend together because she was so like in her climbing career that she was just out and about all the time. So that relationship ended, but she ended up meeting a new partner named Brad Lynch. I don't believe that they're married, but they are partners and he's a chef. And she ended up meeting him on a climbing trip in Moab, Utah, and they live together in Boulder. And at the age of 42, Lynn gave birth to a son. Go, Lynn. At 42 years old. Hell yeah. And she was quoted to say, I feel that right now it doesn't have to be all about me and my experiences. I was ready to begin a new role to face new challenges and adventures as a mother. It's a good learning experience adjusting to the sacrifices that need to be made and that
1: that. is Lynn's life what a badass lady I know isn't she crazy I love it so I was taking notes when you were talking to me just to like help me follow along and I have had a giant glass of wine now but when you told me that she had a baby I wrote 42 and I wrote go Lynn
0: I Wanted to include that because, like, I feel like she dedicated so many years of her life to yeah. like, this passion, and then she had this husband, and she decided she wanted kids, and he didn't. And that's one of those things where we're like, you're late in your life as a woman, mm-hmm. and you want kids, and you you don't have the partner that wants to have them with you, and the time's fucking like ticking. Yeah, and sometimes and think that. She they, did find somebody that later in her life that was able to give her a baby at 42. Yeah, she and I think for a lot of everything. women,
1: the opposite happens. Like, you just settle and think that, you know, your time's passed and this is the hand you've been dealt, and she I not take it.
0: and she lived her entire life living her passion, yeah. and then now gets to live, like, the second part of her passion, which yeah, her is being chapter. a mother and having kids. Yeah.
1: I love that. Pretty cool, huh? What a badass. Yeah, I also love that she was from Fullerton. I know. Yeah. And there was, like, a a lot of other
0: bits about her story that I didn't include in the notes just because I try to, like, you know, not have a nine-hour-long presentation. Yeah. But, like, just a couple other pointers. She... Ended up going to Santa Monica College, and she, like, majored in biology, and she also, at Santa Monica College, at some point became, like, an insane, like, sprinter for the college and won all these insane competitions and, like, landed Santa Monica College its first ever win in some type of, like, I don't even know what kind of run it was, some crazy running thing.
1: Um, you know what's interesting, though, that you say it was a sprint is that sprinting and running are, like, so incredibly different that runners are usually, like, really, really lean mm-hmm. and thin. And sprinters tend to have, like, a lot more muscle mass. Really? Um, and so, yeah, because you're you're using your muscles differently, like, because sprinting is kind of, like, I guess more impact and like, a shorter amount of time where, like, running you're, like – you know, needing to last longer for like long yeah, distance yeah, yeah. running and stuff. Um, so it actually like kind of I can see how her being a climber would actually help her to be a really good sprinter.
0: Yeah. And then she also set one of the first world records in weightlifting.
1: Wow. <laughs> also, I could see the parallels.
0: <laughs> <laughs> she just like hit so many insane physical That milestones is so in her badass. Life. I mean, outside of just, like, kicking it in Joshua Tree and Yosemite and, like, fucking raging at Camp 4. Like, she's just had the craziest life. And then when I was reading her story, like, one of the things I was thinking of is that, like, someone like Lynn living this totally unconventional lifestyle where you don't have a career, so Mm -hmm. to speak, and instead you have this, like, hobby that becomes your passion, that, like, becomes a career in a yeah. sense but it's really not even a career it's more of like a sport and then she just she just ha- has lived this like totally unconventional lifestyle where sometimes I'm like why the fuck don't I have an unconventional <laughs>
1: yeah lifestyle? that is all of our dreams right can I just <laughs> do something fuck? that I'm really passionate about I and I someone please give me money for it
0: god yes
1: <laughs> 40 plus hours a week. Okay, so if you could do that, what would your thing be? What would a thing no be idea. that you did all week and someone gave you money for it? I
0: have no freaking <laughs> clue.
1: I don't know what mine would be either.
0: And I think that's the problem is that some people are born and they immediately yeah, have what that You just have the passion. And it like, totally. like her, she just started it immediately and it clicked mm-hmm. and it worked and it just never ended. Yeah. Where it's like so many other people have to think hard about what is my thing and then they yeah. have to try to make things their thing and then it just doesn't pan out because it's not their thing.
1: I don't know. I think well, it's just
0: like luck of the draw.
1: As shitty as it is that we don't have those things. <laughs> I've always, always been like, I have to have a job that I'm like so passionate about and I love so much. And I finally settled into the reality that that is um, not totally realistic. And also, you know, people like Lynn are really lucky, but I've also thought about, like, that's kind of a a privileged, like, approach to life. Like, tons of people work at really shitty jobs because everyone has to, and, you know, we all have to make money and survive. So while we can't be... Famous rock climbers <laughs> and make lots of money. We can still have fun hobbies that keep us going, you well, know. I think outside that there's of always
0: that. the like catch 22 to everything where, like, to us, Lynn could have this like dream of fr- like a freedom lifestyle, mm-hmm. an unconventional lifestyle, but like, she could have been missing a lot of other very totally very elements that maybe others of us have that she can't have due to her strange lifestyle. Yeah. Like, and I mean, be even like, relationships or family or children or whatever. It totally. Be.
1: And even you talking about like her giving up that like competitive climbing just to go like be free and climb on like her own terms, like that's something she was missing out on. Yeah, because she was doing all this competitive climbing, you know. So the grass yeah. is always greener, right? I know. But her her grass seems really green.
0: <laughs> Literally, her grass is greener. surrounded by greenery at like forty thousand. Super green years.
1: grass. Okay, so before we started recording, I told you that I pulled up a cheat sheet of astrology and I've been looking for this for like days and everything I find has like these really long descriptions and I'm like, I need like the basics. This one is almost too ba- too basic. There are literally two adjectives for every sign.
0: Honestly, per <laughs> sign and whatever adjectives are listed there might make you know what it is. Wait. Because in my personal opinion, Lynn is an exact replica of her Zodiac sign. Okay. So it's possible that the two adjectives next to the sign <sighs> might might be like, yeah, that's Okay. You.
1: I'm going to say that she is either a Sagittarius or a Scorpio.
0: Those are both very excellent guesses. <laughs>
1: but they are wrong. <laughs>
0: Very close. Okay. Okay. What do we got? Capricorn. Okay. What does it say next to Capricorn?
1: (laughs) One of them says organization, so, like, maybe not. I mean, she might have been very organized. I would argue maybe that finding, you know, the right place for your hands and feet while climbing (laughs) takes that skill. But the other one is ambition, and I see that that would very much describe Lynn.
0: But she probably also is some of some type of a Sagittarius because she 100% is such, she's that too. It's like So let me tell 100%. you what it
1: says next to these. The Sagittarius is adventure and independence. Nice. That was yeah. my first guess.
0: That's a perfect guess. And then
1: Scorpio is passion and intensity. So, yep. another. Good. Um, this is from dummies.com. <laughs> Not sure how reliable this information is.
0: Well, just to further elaborate, Capricorns are known to basically be relentless in terms of their, um, uh, not only just careers, but anything that they're interested in, they will do it until they have perfected it and become the best at it more than anybody on earth. Okay. And I feel like Lynn basically nailed nailed that.
1: (laughs) I love it. Awesome. Thank you for introducing me to Lynn. And make sure Um, you
0: watch that documentary because you'll love it.
1: I will. Valley Uprising. Yes. I have it in my notes.
0: Uh, I think that's right. Is that correct?
1: Probably. So Nikki and I actually went bouldering a few times. When you were in Utah? Back in the day. No, in a gym when she was still in SF Mm -hmm. at Planet Granite. And I loved it also. I've never done the belay because you have to get, like, certified. But you have inspired me to go try it again because I probably only did it, like, five times. But I really liked it when I did um so now i feel ready to go tackle those boulders again you should maybe i'll have to go with you soon Woo! you'll be the expert
0: (laughs) yeah right
1: (laughs) all right well i guess that means it's my turn i feel like i'm going to be a little all over the place right now (laughs) that's okay um okay so i had found so many notes on the person that i chose you did mention that you kind of picked your person based on you know kind of like my style and what I'm into you thought I would like her mm-hmm. and um I also changed my person because when I found her I was like I think Melissa will like relate and be behind this lady um so I am going to do Hetty Lamar are you familiar oh
0: good Um, I am not entirely familiar. Okay, but my old work BFF Libby used to give me constant women like Uh recommendations that I would pile on a giant list, and one of them is Hedy Lamar.
1: So like. Brad mentioned about making sure you had not done the woman I like went through and had to like list every single episode and like triple check because I was so paranoid that you had already done her but I was like I refuse to ask because I don't want to spoil the surprise <laughs> so I'm glad to have confirmation that you have not have <laughs> done not. Hedy Lamar. Um, so I don't know how much you do know about her from um, your old coworker telling you, but Hetty Lamar is probably most well known as being a really famous drop dead gorgeous actress back in like the 1930s and 40s. Um, she also produced a few movies, um, some were better than others, but she did have um, a couple like big successes as a producer um but the reason that i chose her is that hedy lamar it was also an inventor and one of the inventions that um she had actually had like tremendous influence on technologies that we are using right this moment so she's pretty badass the iphone <laughs> yes she invented the iphone <laughs> in 1944 <laughs> Um, so I'm like trying to figure out the best way to do this. And I think I'm just going to like start from the beginning and go. Um, so yeah, I'm just going to do that. Are you ready?
0: I'm ready. <laughs> Bring it on.
1: Okay. So Hetty was born Hedwig Eva Maria Kiesler, and she was born to a Jewish family in 1914 in Austria. And um, she lived in Vienna and she lived in a pretty affluent neighborhood of assimilated Jews. So her family was really wealthy there. She was like pretty cultured, exposed to the arts. They went to like the opera and the theater a lot. Um, And so she was kind of always in this like world of, of kind of the idea of fame and stardom. Um, But even as a young child, um, her father was always pointing out kind of, just like regular old things that you might not think too much of on the street um, and talking about the mechanisms and like the engineering behind how they actually worked. So one example is like a streetcar. like you see it passing by and you don't think much of it, but like what's actually driving that streetcar from A to B, right? Mm-hmm. And so she, at a young age, like just had a really keen interest in how things worked. Um, and at age five, uh, she took apart her music box and like completely reassembled the entire thing. Like, you know, those little like twisty yeah. things. Yeah, so like she was already just like super curious about everything and really smart. Um, it was also said that like one of her favorite classes when she was growing up was chemistry. So a lot of people think that had she been born in a different era, her life might have taken, like, a total different trajectory. And she might have become a scientist or an engineer. Um, But by her teenage years, she had developed into, like, a beautiful young teenager developing woman. um, And her beauty did not go unnoticed. And so at, like, 15, she was already, you know, modeling. And um, they even – I thought they – oh, so I have to – interrupt myself i had read like 50 different articles and was like trying to piece them all together and then i was looking for like a podcast or something i could listen to in traffic just yesterday and somehow stumbled onto a pbs documentary about her that just came out in 2017 and it was on netflix so i watched it last night and was like thank god this like put everything in chronological order for me and helped me but one of the things they showed which i was like totally shocked by is uh, New to photos that she had taken at the age of sixteen, but again she lived in this like really like cultured and artistic neighborhood, and so that um kind of like those liberties for women were not um necessarily like looked down upon like women in the arts in well, that society were like known to have like lots of lovers and like well, be yeah. really free with their I bodies feel like, wasn't
0: this like the same time period as like um um, like Heming Hemingway, and like oh
1: Hemingway, yes,
0: yeah, and I f- wasn't he, so one of those like oh my God, she might have been in uh, a movie I had seen one time, but oh. there was somebody from Austria during this time period who was very like uh posh and. You know, Vogue, and just yeah. like, living this like high
1: life. Ooh, well, you will have to look at a picture of her and let me okay. know if and what movie it was because I'm curious. Well, to see remember if it was that her.
0: movie with uh, what is that fool's name with the broken nose? All <laughs> the men? The blonde. The blonde um, <laughs> Owen Wilson. Owen Wilson. What is it called? Moonlight. Something.
1: Wait, she was born in 1914.
0: No, 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 but remember the No, 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 no. Remember the so Luke Wilson. Has oh, a movie like she, where I know what you're like talking about. Back into time. Okay, I was like um in, like, she was Paris, not in a movie, France, with Luke but Wilson. all these artists were there like Picasso yes. and Hemingway and he so, meets,
1: like Tallulah, whatever. She rubbed elbows with Picasso. So okay. I think that's definitely possible. <laughs> okay, she
0: might have been a uh, one of these characters in that movie. I'm okay. Like, I, I
1: can't remember, can't remember what, what called. it's called. Midnight Midnight in Paris. Midnight
0: in Paris. I think
1: I have seen it, but I don't remember a second of it. It's so good. So I'll have to rewatch. Okay. Okay. So nude photos, 16. Here we go. So also at the age of 16, she forged a note from her mother that she was ditching school. um, And she went into an acting studio and tried to get some work. And she um, got a walk-on film role in like 15 days. And um, by age like 16, 17, she had already had a couple of other like really small um, roles in other films. So in 1993, at age 18 is when she like really started to become well known for a very controversial film called Ecstasy that she was in. And this was the first thing I read when I went, oh, Melissa's going to like her. (laughs) So (laughs) the reason this film was so controversial was because of the number of nude scenes that she was portrayed in, but probably most concerning and controversial to members of the public was the scene in which she simulated an orgasm. Oh, wow. So it was basically considered to be like pornographic. And I don't know because I didn't get all the details and I have not seen the movie, but I did read that like the movie is about her playing a neglected young wife to like an indifferent old older man. And in the scene, I know it's like just her face simulating this orgasm. So I also wondered if she's supposed to be masturbating because like her husband's not paying attention to her, which I'm sure would make it even more controversial at that time. So the film was denounced by the Pope. Uh, um, it was banned in the United States, but it did win an award in Rome and it was widely regarded as like an artistic work of art um, in other countries in Europe. Um, But it was also banned by Hitler in Germany. But interestingly enough, it was not because of the nudity, but because its main actress was Jewish, Um, which we'll play into things later.
0: Interesting. Okay.
1: Um, So later that year, she's still 18. She marries this man named Fritz Mandel, Mandel, and he's described as like the Henry Ford of Austria. He's 14 years her senior, so he's 33 at the time. And he comes from a Jewish father and a Catholic mother, um, but I read somewhere that he insisted that she convert to Catholicism before their wedding. And I don't think that she actually did, but it's just, like, a theme of her life is, like, her having to kind of, like, suppress her identity a little bit. So she was Jewish? She was Jewish. Got it, um, okay. She was born – but they were kind of, like, assimilated Jews. So yeah, they had, yeah, like yeah. – they were wealthy. They were upper class. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was also Jewish. His father was Jewish. But um, he – I think – i honestly might be totally putting my foot in my mouth right now but i think in like judaism if you if like one of your parents is jewish to be like truly jewish it's your mother that is supposed to be not your father i could be totally wrong maybe you're gonna want to edit that out i don't know (laughs) i'll look it up yeah look it up before you throw that in there (laughs) um but whatever he had at least like distanced himself from his jewish heritage and he wanted her to do the same So he was super wealthy, um, and he had ties to Italian fascist leaders and also to Nazis, which is kind of ironic because of his Jewish heritage and hers. Um, It's said that he and Hitler were, like, never in the same room together because of his Jewish background, but he was an arms dealer, and so he had a lot of, like, meetings with, like, Nazi Germans that came to their home um, to sell them military arms.
0: That's gnarly.
1: Yeah, crazy. So he was super controlling and he was like threatened by her beauty. He always thought that he was, she was like cheating on her or cheating on him or flirting with other men. Um, Hilarious. He tried to buy all the copies of that film <laughs> ecstasy, like off the market. Wow. <laughs> so okay, no nope.
0: literal lunatic.
1: Yeah. So um, it kind of like ended up, she was kind of like living in a prison. So eventually she decides to flee their marriage and their country. And um I don't have this in my notes but I'll try and recall as best as I can from the documentary I watched her son tells a story of her fleeing which is like so ridiculous I don't know how much I believe of it but they lived in this huge estate with like 25 guest rooms like a castle and um apparently she was like a part of the hiring of all the help around the house so like maids and stuff and so she like developed this plan and she hired a maid that looked Kind of like her. And then she like dosed the eight, the maid with like sleeping pills in her tea or something and <laughs> took her uniform, dressed up as her, grabbed a coat and put all her jewels and like nice stuff and like rode away on a bicycle in the middle of the night. Oh <laughs> my.
0: I really hope that's true.
1: <laughs> so I don't know how much of that is accurate, but she rode away into the night, never to be seen. That's a of lady. So she goes to London. It's 1937 now. And she sees an MGM movie. So, you know, when you go to the movies, there's like the big lion intro. Mm -hmm. And she's like, I need to be in one of those movies. I'm going to America. So she finds an American film agent who introduces her to Louis B. Mayer, who is like the third partner of MGM. So it's Metro, Goldwyn and Mayer. And he's in London, and he's basically there to, like, scout actors and actresses for low fees. He's like, everyone's trying to flee Nazi Germany, so I'm going to come here, and I'm going to acquire all this cheap talent and bring them back to Hollywood. So he offers her $100 a week to come back to Hollywood and work for him, and she says no, that she's worth more than that, and she's not going so they part ways, he heads back to New York on the ship Normandy, and then she's like, oh, fuck, I shouldn't have done that. <laughs> so she goes and she buys a ticket for the ship, and she hops on the Normandy, and she basically goes there with the plan that, like, she is going to be seen and make him know that, like, he needs to have her. So he put she puts on, like, sends, like, all, the last of her money on this ticket, puts on her nicest ball gown, and goes to, like, the dining hall and just, like everyone's glasses drop like all the men are staring at her including louis b mayor and um he realizes like he has to have her on um on his team and she ends up securing a 500 hundred dollar a week contract and Whoa. yes so she fucking did her negotiating that what's that
0: that was probably a ton of money
1: yeah, well, I mean, time. think about, too, he initially offered her $100. Yeah. So that's 500 Yeah. You know, five times as much, 500% more. I don't know about that math. <laughs> <laughs> do math on this podcast. I'm usually good at math, but the wine's fucking me up. Um, <laughs> so, okay, she gets to New York, and then she ends up in Hollywood. Now she's, like, 22, 23. So... Then she ends up being cast in this movie Algier um, with Charles Boyer. And I don't know anything about this movie, but it was like a huge success. And that just like shot her to stardom in the United States and internationally. And um, she's now like on the cover of all these movie magazines, all the like famous actresses of like that time started like parting their hair, like her and like dressing similar to her. Um, And I totally want you to – actually, I have a picture of her, and I'm going to show it to you right now while I tell you this. But um, they ended up basing Snow White and Catwoman off of her.
0: Oh, wow.
1: Yeah, so she was just, like, drop-dead gorgeous. Like, everyone wanted to be her beautiful. Yeah, she I can't – I don't know about Catwoman because she – I don't know. Like, the cartoon character Catwoman, but I totally see Snow White when I oh, look 100%. at her. 100%. So um, she becomes really famous. She, as I mentioned, started like rubbing elbows with all these um, heavy hitters in the like arts and uh, like political industries of that time. So um, some, some name dropping. She was hanging out with Picasso, Charlie Cha- Chaplin, and even JFK before he became president. Um, so at 23, she is remarried to a screenwriter named Jean Marquis. Uh, And he wasn't, like, someone that people expected to see her with. He was kind of, like, pudgy and uh, not the most attractive guy. And he was a little bit older. But I think she, like, genuinely liked him and thought he had talent and was smart. Um, And they end up adopting a son together. But within months of dating or marriage, he starts dating other actresses.
0: Oh, great. Great. Yeah, yeah, he's a great guy. Adopts a kid and then fucking bills for other chicks. Amazing.
1: So now it's like one year after she had this like huge successful movie, but like she's not getting a ton of work and her marriage is failing and she's like unhappy with MGM. Um, They're giving her bad scripts. So she petitions for a kind of small role in this movie called Boomtown with Clark Gable, which she ends up getting and it becomes like a huge hit. And so it kind of like secures her career for the next few years. Um, But I didn't know this was some interesting, uh, Knowledge that I gained in watching the documentary last night is that um, A lot of actors and actresses, um, at least during this time, were signed on to contracts And were, like, severely overworked and underpaid Um, So she was on a seven-year contract with MGM And they'd be made to work, like, six to seven days a week into the evening And were basically being fed, like, speed, like, diet pills and shit shit To, like, keep them up and then would be given like sleeping pills and stuff when they oh had time to yeah so just How like a super is that unhealthy for your, like brain lifestyle yeah Ugh. and that'll come up later um, on but she the the later part of her life is a little darker than some of these highs and i think that that whole like time of her life had a lot to do with it for sure um so she's again working six to seven days a week she's working into the nighttime but outside of work she really isn't sleeping that much because she is working on her latest inventions (laughs) so (laughs) she has not lost her love um for like exploration and invention and just like tinkering with shit and so um by 1940, she has a whole like inventing table set up in her house and i don't even really know what an inventing table entails but I have run across that term a lot. So I'd imagine (laughs) it like a wood shop, but just like a workshop with lots of technical stuff. Um, She even has a small version of it in her trailer on set to like play with when she um, has a break from filming and everything. So um, another man that crosses her path uh, is Howard Hughes and he is an aviation tycoon and, um, it's kind of funny. They were said to be romantically involved at some point, but uh, it's thought that their relationship was a little more like cerebral and based on like, you know, intelligence and smarts Yeah. compared to her other relationships. And she described him as one of the worst lovers she's ever had.
0: Oh, great. <laughs>
1: Um, but they really like jived in their like passion for innovation. And um again, he was in aviation, and he wanted to make his planes faster. Um, and one like really neat thing that I read about a lot that she did is she went out and she found scientific books and journals. and she looked at the fastest fish and the fastest birds and the way that their bodies were shaped and looking at like aerodynamics and hydrodynamics and basically like suggested changes to the shape of his planes um to increase speed so just like an example of she's smart like she knows what's well, up
0: yeah and like what a like crazy interest
1: yeah yeah <laughs> so cool so um she invented a couple of other things that like never really took off one of them was an improved traffic stoplight No more information to give you from there. (laughs) Uh, I don't know what that means. I don't know if it's being actually used. I kind of think no, but she did something that improved a traffic stoplight. I think a lot of her inventions, like, weren't actually adopted, but they were cool. Um, Another one that was a little bit, like, kind of landed flat, but is still interesting. She was really trying to create a soda tablet. So, during World War II, there was – it was really difficult to um, to deliver goods to certain countries, you know, that, like, Germany had their ports blocked. And uh, so as a way for, like, soldiers and people living in those countries to have, like, Coca-Cola, she wanted to develop a soda tablet that you could, like, dissolve in oh, water. Wow. And, and did, like, so she co- did it. And I think I read somewhere that she admitted herself that it kind of just tasted like Alka-Seltzer. <laughs> and oh. I think – Um, What was neat about the documentary that I watched is that there is a lot of recordings from her, um, this guy that had gotten a hold of her later in her life and interviewed her in, like, the 1990s, and she said something in there about, like, the reason it being – So unsuccessful is that you couldn't predict like the quality of water that it was being added to. So she's like, sometimes it would dissolve in the bottom, sometimes it would dissolve in the middle, sometimes it would dissolve in the top. That's funny. That's true. Though I bet admitted that it was like totally not successful. But again, she's like, these are the things that she's thinking of, right?
0: But then the the company Airborne like gypped her of her idea and created Airborne. Well, and that's like.
1: (laughs) <laughs> yeah and it's like alka seltzer is the same thing, so I yeah. the whole like water quality thing obviously is still a factor today, so there must be mm-hmm. ways around it yeah um but it, those were like the type of things that she was thinking of um so now we're getting to the good goods, so it's World War two and remember that hetty comes from a Jewish family, and um it's not looking good for the allies at this time. It looks like Germany might win the war and Hetty is feeling a lot of guilt because she is in Hollywood um I didn't mention but during that first marriage her father died who she was really close with which I think was maybe something that like pushed her to leave um mm-hmm. and kind of change her life um but her mom was still in Austria and she really wanted to bring her To California, but she hadn't been able to. So she felt a lot of guilt um, just kind of like sitting around and profiting from videos or movies during the war. And so she wanted a way to contribute. And so during the war, um, one challenge that the Allies were facing is that the Germans were intercepting their communications to torpedoes. So, like, submarines would send a torpedo somewhere and Germany would either be able to intercept it so that they knew, you know, what was happening or they'd be able to interfere and like jam it so that that communication couldn't happen at all. And so Petty basically is inspired to find a way for um, submarines to communicate with, with torpedoes without interruption. So then she meets, in 1940, a man named George Antheil. Thiel. I'm not sure if that's how you say his name. Probably not. He's a super famous pianist. And they start talking about this and basically decide that they're going to, like, join forces to create something to, like, contribute to the war. And so they end up making three inventions all together, all meant to, like, help the Allies fight Germany one of which was this method of communicating from the submarines to the torpedoes. So it was kind of like her idea, but George was kind of like the one who put it all into place because he had mm-hmm. just recently done this like huge, like musical performance or composition that involved the synchronizing of like 16 different pianos. And so they basically used like that technology to support her idea and so from the two of them was born frequency hopping and I'm going to do a really shitty job of explaining this right now so for all the scientists out there cut me some slack but basically (laughs) there
0: is no scientist (laughs) okay
1: what about Brad
0: (laughs) Brad Brad? can write up a Brad don't judge me after
1: the episode's done So I'm going to try and explain this in like the most basic way for people to understand, but also for me to actually be able to explain it, is that to imagine if, um, like think of like channels, right? So if your submarine is communicating to a torpedo on channel two, well, if Germany gets on channel two, they can either access your communications or again, they can like interfere with it. So think of that channel as being like a frequency. Her idea was if you have multiple frequencies and you're bouncing around between them in like a certain pattern that both the ship or the submarine and the torpedo are on that those can't be interfered with because if someone does successfully interfere with your channel, a second later, it's moving to another one. And so it's called frequency hopping or sped spectrum technology. So, um, George and Hetty eventually, oh, one other thing, I heard somewhere that this kind of like motivated George's involvement, but I did some sleuthing and the timeline does not add up, but I thought it was interesting to note that George's little brother, who was 12 years younger than him, um, his name was Henry, and he was actually the first American killed in World War II when his helicopter was shot down by soviets Oh wow! so in the film they said like that was kind of his motivation is like revenge mm-hmm. but i think he and hetty were actually working on this before that happened but still kind of crazy um and obviously like motivated him further um to support the allies and stop germany um so boom boom where am i okay they got a patent um, in 1941, they applied for it, and it was granted in 1942. So they go to the Navy, and they take them this idea, and the Navy's like, "You want us to put a fucking piano on this? Like, what are you talking about?" <laughs> They're basically like, "No, this is ridiculous." And um, jo- Hetty wants to continue, and George is kind of like, mm, "Like, I did my thing. It's good." And um, they eventually donate the patent to the National Inventors Council with the understanding that if the military does ever use it, that they would be paid for it. So again, Hedy, like still wants to be participating. Um, and the Navy basically says to her, you know, you'd be helping a lot more if you left all this like inventing and stuff to the experts. And if you could just go out and sell some some war bonds, that would be the best you could do. So, oh, as okay. insulting as that is, <laughs> Hetty did go out and start working as a bond clerk, and she um, it is said, ended up selling about twenty five million dollars worth of war bonds, which in today's money would be about three hundred and forty three million dollars. So, oh yeah, she would go out and, like, perform for troops and stuff, but she'd also use, like, her celebrity prowess to, like – she'd, like, sell, like, a kiss on the cheek or, like, a picture with her, you know? And she raised, like, an insane amount of money to help the Allies. So, <laughs> oh again, as fucking rude as those guys were for telling her that, she was like, you know what? I'm going to do everything that I can to to help us win this war. So I thought that was pretty cool.
0: That is cool.
1: Um, So, flash forward – Um, in 1969, it's kind of all like fizzled out. Hetty ends up writing to a friend in the Navy to ask kind of like what happened with the patent. And they end up finding out that frequency hopping was eventually put to use during the Cuban Missile Crisis. And, um, all the ships that were running blockade to Cuba were all equipped with this technology. And they had kind of, um, but, oh, what happened is that I guess like patents expire and um, it this apparently wasn't done during the life of the patent because it expired in 1959. Um, so they basically said you don't get any money. Wow. And yeah. Um, and there's actually evidence that it was given to a contractor around 1955 who was tasked to create a sono buoy, um, which is pretty much like buoys that are deployed to like communicate information back to like ships or like aircraft. So if that had happened in 1955, it would have been during the lifespan of the patent and she should have been entitled to that money. Yeah. Um
0: they just didn't give it to her.
1: Yes. And I can't find it in my many pages of notes. But there is also some law that you have like six years to like sue or something. And of course Hetty didn't know this. So she wasn't able to do that. Ugh. Um so oh yeah here it is six years to sue after expiration Hetty did not know <laughs> 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 so um after this time i like wrote all these notes about this part of Hetty's life and then i was like you know what i don't really even want to talk about it that much because i think that she was super awesome and the later part of her life was not so bright but just to give a little bit an of idea of what kind of happened in the next few way, years after all of this, um, she starts to feel kind of betrayed by Hollywood. You know, she's obviously like aging; she's losing her looks and all her stardom. She has had a number of failed marriages. So Hetty was actually married six times. Nice. Yes, <laughs> thought you'd like that. Um, <laughs> so she had a few failed marriages and then she also it seemed like she kind of got in a weird place with drugs there are some pictures of her like she looks like she's fucking tweaked out and I think that a lot of that had to do with those like pet pills that were being provided to her when she was working in the movie industry um I don't really know a whole lot about this but now I'm like dying to learn more but it was also mentioned that she was a patient of Dr. Feelgood um who saw like hundreds of patients in the 1950s like celebrities um and then lost his medical license in 1974 and he was basically like advertising giving people like vitamin b shots to like pep them up and give them life all these vitamins he was really just injecting them with like 40 milligrams of meth so she was fucked up but like not really because I don't – I feel like she – it was a result of the system and this, like, culture that she was a part of. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. unknowingly, she kind of got, like, sucked into this lifestyle. Um, she also started having plastic surgery at f- the age of 40 and interestingly enough she was kind of an innovator in the plastic surgery realm as well that she'd be (laughs) like i want you to do an incision here and take something from here but cut me here so no one will see my scar and like actually had some like pretty impressive surgeries done to the point that like people were going and requesting like i want what had got like you know but as we see with a lot of people who kind of like fall into that what you might say is an addictive habit had he ended up having some like really botched plastic surgery and not looking great. And I think for someone that had like been recognized their whole life for their looks, um, that was I'm sure really, really hard um and she was also arrested for shoplifting nice kind of Winona Ryder-ish like she (laughs) had a lot of money and she like had money on her and she ended up getting acquitted but she like lost her last role in a film because of it so her late life just was like kind of dark and she kind of ended up becoming a recluse and I think a lot of it had to do with her looks right
0: um
1: but eventually um people in like the communication industry start to recognize the work that she's done. And I could not find his name for the life of me, but there is actually, it was read on the documentary I watched that um, one of the guys, I think it was the guy who created the Sono, Sono Buoy, like wrote a, a something acknowledging Hetty basically for like her contributions to what he had invented that like, it wouldn't have happened without her. Um, So she starts getting recognition and actually, like, winning some awards later in her life. Um, But, again, she, like, doesn't want to come out at all. Um, She was awarded some award that I can't find the name of. And uh, it was pretty funny. She didn't want to go, as I mentioned. And so her son went to accept this award for her. And it is so hilarious. This is a little off topic. But his, he's talking about her and his phone starts ringing in the middle of his speech. And he's like, oh my God, this is humiliating. And he pulls out his phone and it's her (laughs) and he answers it. And she's like, hey, how did it go? And he's like, how did it go? I'm standing up here right now. It was really funny. Um, but he had like a recording of her, like, you know, what, what do you want to say? And, um, I think it was really special for her to finally be recognized. Wait, does um, she not
0: want to go because she's just all freaked out about her botched face?
1: Yeah, I think she just, Aww. I think she felt kind of, like, betrayed um, by this, like, life that she had came and thought she wanted, you know? Yeah. And I think she also was really, really homesick. Um, I think she wanted to go back to Vienna really badly. And again, she had kind of, like... I also heard something that when she started working for MGM, part of the contract for all the um, actors and actresses was that they weren't allowed to like discuss their religion or their religious affiliation. And so I think, you know, her Jewish heritage was probably really meaningful to her and also like a way to connect with her family. But she kind of like hid it from the world because of a number of different pressures from like Hollywood and, you know, the political climate and the national climate. So I, think she I feel was like
0: it's, like, again, one of those things where sh- you, you like, you want – you see this stardom and it's so appealing and then mm-hmm. you get it and you're, like, holy shit, I'm so, like, uh, removed and distant yeah. from the things that really matter to me now. And yeah. And I've, like, turned into this whirlwind of investing in things that don't matter and now I'm feeling shitty about it. Yeah.
1: Ugh. So – um it sounds like though when she was in her 80s she lived a long life um she passed in 2000 but she kind of started to like reflect and acknowledge that like your contributions are meaningful your contributions to the world are meaningful like with or without acknowledgement um and so to bring it kind of all the way back to the present and the reason why i said that Hedy has actually impacted you and I, and this very podcast that we're recording right now is that Hedy's, um, uh, frequency hopping spread <laughs> start that over. <laughs> Hetty's frequency hopping spread spectrum technology is the technology that was the foundation and inspiration for GPS, Bluetooth and Wi-Fi technologies. What? So everything that we're doing right now is with great gratitude to Hetty Lamar. Wait, um and so, all so she's
0: of this is frequency
1: Yeah. So the reason that we can go uninterrupted without competing with like all the other people that are on their phones right now or wow. trying to get on the internet is because we are bouncing around between all these frequencies so that we're not all trying to it increases the, the bandwidth.
0: Same. That's not.
1: Yeah, and it's also a reason how you like have secure internet because people can't necessarily like just hop on your computer and see what you're doing because again, you're like bouncing around and to identify those patterns is obviously like much more difficult than just hopping on one one frequency That's that perfect. someone's using. I can't even-
0: like my brain can't even like. So that's why us. I tried to watch like
1: five YouTube's YouTube videos before we talked, and I was like, "Oh my god, how the fuck am I gonna explain this?" Like I'm gonna. I started watching one, and I was like, "Too much. I can't." um no, like
0: it makes sense, but like trying to visualize it and understand yeah. it, like from an educated place, is very hard.
1: Yeah. So um, the award I just found my notes that she was given just to jump back um. It said today that uh, military satellite systems, which provide protected communications for the president and high-ranking military of- officers, and like super duper important nuclear command and control communications, all rely on this technology that Hetty created. So that award that she got was awarded to her by the Navy and Milstar, thanking for her for her idea and her contributions to um, like military defense. And so since then she has been recognized like a number of times, um, after death, she was inducted into the national inventors hall of fame. Um, while I was like searching around online, it looks like there's a lot of great like STEM and engineering, like scholarships and awards named after her for like young women in, um, you know, tech and, uh, STEM, um, and, yeah, she's just pretty fucking badass. And so today it's estimated that the market value of her and George's invention is about $30 billion. Whoa. Which she never got any of. Wow. Yeah. That
0: so is not even her kids? Even after she was, like, awarded, no, like, all this credit?
1: Because of the patent expiration. What fucking fucking dickholes,
0: I yeah. swear to God.
1: So I wish that I had – these like lined up and ready to go for you but one of the things that like turned me on to her the most and i knew you would love were some of these great quotes of hers and most of them are not about really inventing or anything but about like not being inferior to a man and like kind of mocking this like like ridiculous infatuation with beauty um so i'm just gonna read a couple of them to you because i thought you would like them bring it on um So, let's see. I just passed one that I thought was the good one. Oh, this was the first one I read, which I thought was hilarious. She said, any girl can look glamorous. All you have to do is stand still and look stupid. So, I thought that one was good. Um, And then this was another one that stood out to me. She said, again, married six times. She said, I must quit marrying men who feel inferior to me. Somewhere there must be a man who could be my husband and not feel inferior. And I think that really was, like, her struggle. She was so smart, and I think that people just saw her for her beauty and thought that she was nothing more than that. And then and they I got think, her and
0: they were like, oh, shit, we didn't Yeah, this.
1: Yeah, and I think that a lot of her relationships, she felt like they didn't even try and, like, really get to know her on a – like below a surface level. And so I feel like she probably a lot throughout her life, like lacked uh, real connection because sure. no one was really like prepared to give that to her. Yeah. So
0: Aww. yeah.
1: So that's Hedy Lamar. I love that you ended on
0: quotes. That's always my thing. Yeah.
1: That like I said, I stumbled across her quotes, and that was when I'm like, okay, Melissa's gonna like like this girl.
0: (laughs) They just sum up the like character so much more like intensely. I feel I love it. Oh my god, I loved it all. I
1: will admit that until I watched the documentary, I hadn't heard about kind of the like darker part of her later life, and I was bummed to hear that. That okay, she struggled in that but way, like, but I also feel like it's important to, like, acknowledge that, it is. You know, everybody know, that was
0: fucking dark parts of yeah. her life, and I feel yeah. like that's what makes everyone human. If we mm-hmm. just covered women that were perfect constantly, exactly. it wouldn't be natural or realistic for anyone to even be able to relate to it.
1: Yeah, and that's what's wild is, is that in all these articles and stuff that I'd found, I never read anything that kind of mentioned that part of her life. So, Pitch... Um, there is a biography written about Hetty, but I've read a lot of um, articles and also seen some things, I think, in the documentary that, like, they basically hired a ghostwriter, and then when the documentary or the biography came out, she, like was totally appalled by it and didn't think it was, like, a reflection of her, so don't read her biography. <laughs> oh, that sucks. But, um, the documentary on Netflix just came out in 2017, and it's called Bombshell, like, the Hedy Lamar story or something like and that. And you just so, watched this, like, yesterday? Yes. <laughs>
0: nice! Oh, my God, I'm gonna watch it this weekend.
1: Yeah, it was good, so, um... Ooh.
0: Yeah. I'm so happy you covered her. Yeah, I think
1: I talked for an hour, so sorry. No, you didn't.
0: Uh, you did not talk for an hour. And I
1: I had to – I actually cut, like, so much of
0: it. Well, see, that's, like – that's the thing. It's hard. Is like, you really don't know until you've done it a couple of times. Like, yeah. my first episode doing Yoko Ono, it was, like, 90 <laughs> hours long. I included so much information that I realized later wasn't completely relevant. And so you really just have to, you know, you just do it a couple times, and then you start to kind of get the rhythm and understand, like, the flow of just the pre- presentation port- part. But you fucking killed it. You did an
1: Yay! awesome job. And I am so stoked I learned about her. Well, I am stoked that I learned about Lynn. And now we both have movies to watch this I weekend. I right?
0: <laughs> <laughs> Okay, I have instant... Astrology guesses.
1: Oh, right. I totally forgot about it. Okay. You know what hers is? I do. And what's hilarious is that I thought it was a different sign until like five minutes before we started. (laughs) Because I fucked up her birthday. Okay.
0: So I have three guesses starting from the one I think the most that it is and then second and third. Okay. So don't tell me, like, I'm going to say the first one and either say yes or no and then I'm going to do the second one. So don't tell me what it is until I'm done with my guesses. But my first guess is Aquarius. No. Damn it. All right, my second guess is Gemini. No. No. <laughs> Those are such, like, absolute
1: lands for me on this I'm year. reading the de- the descriptions now of both of them. Oh, I can totally see that based on my two-word traits <laughs> from dummies.com.
0: Then my third guess is Scorpio.
1: Woo! Yes! That's it. <laughs> it wasn't
0: my first or second, though.
1: So you did hear because I, I told you when I guess Scorpio for yours also, but passion and intensity are the two traits that I have written here. Yeah. And I do think that those describe her. But again, if anyone would also like to learn from the dummies dot com <laughs> <that I'm> referencing. <laughs> Aries is energy and initiative. Totally see. And Gemini Wait, Aries, is verse
0: No, I said Aquarius.
1: Oh shit. Okay. <laughs> Originality and vision. (laughs) Um, wait, now I Gemini was the other one you said, right? Yeah, Aquarius and Gemini. Versatility and curiosity. So I can
0: also see those. How
1: would you describe all those in more than two words? (laughs) Like, why did you guess them?
0: Aquariuses are known to be like, like we're all on planet Earth, and they're like a hundred miles in the sky, ten steps ahead of people in creativity and innovation. And they're also huge humanitarians. Like they give okay. a fuck about like humanity as a whole. And then Gemini, they just have seven billion thousand hobbies at any given <laughs> moment. That like they, they like hop around from six trillion things, and they're always like, it's always a new project or a new plan. And so that just also kind of seemed kind of like her. And then I only thought Scorpio because they like. I mean, other than them just being extremely intense, they're very, like, transformative is sometimes the word to describe them, where they, like, they make an impact that, like, changes shit. Okay. So I thought uh, she was a
1: Sagittarius until, like, five minutes before we (laughs) I would have never thought that. It wasn't, it had nothing to do with her traits, mind you, because I don't know them. It was just by her birthday, and I was like, oh, fuck, that's not right. I like had to cross it out in my paper, and I was I like, "I would
0: have been like triple sad. <laughs> that doesn't make Any sense? Really.
1: Yeah. Oh my so, god! It was so. It was good. a close call.
0: <laughs> well, that was very
1: awesome. That was super
0: fun. I know. So excited. I loved all of it. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. It was an honor.
1: <laughs>
0: it, it was an honor having you for episode thirty-six.
1: I know that's crazy. It
0: really is crazy. Go get them,
1: Tiger. I'm just keeping it going. (laughs) Keeping it going. figure it out
0: as we roll along.
1: Well, I thought that was super fun. I definitely felt like I was doing homework for school, like a book report.
0: It literally is. And then I was
1: like, so I did laugh because I know that um, we are both Virgos, but you always remind me that you think I'm more of a Leo. (laughs) But I do identify with many of the Virgo traits. And on my cheat sheet here, one of the – or the two things listed are analysis and perfectionism. And I was like, that is me. Literally, I spent, like, two hours, like, today, like, last minute being like, oh, fuck, all my notes. Like, I need to rewrite them. I need to print out all these articles. I'm like, this is not right. It's all out of order. (laughs) (laughs) And I was, like, stressing. And I –
0: yes yeah i mean so that's i was like experience. i feel like i did
1: a book report and i did not, <laughs> not allow myself enough time and i just like procrastinated like our eleanor roosevelt report freshman what year
0: eleanor roosevelt report you do not
1: remember that when we did fucking adderall and i fell asleep and then i copied your whole report <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember. are you serious in the dorms
0: did I have a good report you got a better grade on it than me huh (laughs) I
1: think I did but I copied your (laughs) syrupist. did you copy it verbatim no obviously I changed it but I like I copied all the context and remember we both took Adderall for the first time and you were like cracked out all night and I fell asleep like 30 minutes
0: later Okay, I'm very happy you remember this. I don't completely remember. I have a lot of missing memories from college.
1: And why were we talking about her? I don't remember what class it was for because I don't even think that we had that many classes together. Um But I know it was Eleanor Roosevelt, and we were supposed to read this book, and neither of us did, of course. Oh, no,
0: I remember this. Yeah. I think I read, like, a good portion of that
1: book. Well, I think you read it that night on Adderall. I read it the
0: night on Adderall. (laughs) Because
1: it wasn't, like, super long. It It was only, like, 150 pages, but we literally had not started the book, like, the day (laughs) before it was due. (laughs)
0: Listen... I, don't, I can completely edit this out, but I have another memory. We were very strategic in college. Yes. Because I don't remember what class this was, but we would show up completely unprepared. Oh, where we not- would sit? Yes. Yes.
1: I remember. You don't have to edit it out. I think it's brilliant, and it should be shared, because we are innovators. Do so
0: you want to explain?
1: Um, well, I don't want to steal it.
0: <laughs> I don't okay well I can't I feel like I can only remember partial bits okay of this. well I can
1: explain then okay basically we would strategically sit so that we could both see each other's papers but we could also both see at least one other good pe- person to copy so essentially <laughs> we were like both benefiting from copying two smart people by copying each we- other so, I was copying Melissa, or you. I'm, like, talking to the audience now. Sorry. I was copying you, and you were copying me, but really,
0: we were, copying we were both copying
1: the two other people in the class. <laughs> what class was that? I don't know. I feel like we, like, barely even had classes together. What was all this homework and tests we were doing? <laughs> uh, I have no idea. They had to have been, like... God, what classes did we have together? I have no no clue. Like, what would Eleanor Roosevelt have 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 been? I don't think I took any history classes.
0: It must have been Maybe one. I think we had to take one
1: history class in college, and that was probably it.
0: I just remember that I had to write an essay on Obama, (laughs) and I didn't do it, and I failed. (laughs) And then I remember I also had to write an essay on a word that, no joke, San Francisco State, 2007 or 8, mm. English class, the instruction was to pick a word that you want to proclaim, like, to reclaim, so, like, a word that's out in society that's being abused, and you want to take that word back and own it for yourself, and then write a whole essay on what it means to you and why you're reclaiming it. Okay. Do you know what word I chose?
1: Cunt. Yes! <laughs> <laughs> is all coming back in to me in college <laughs> what the word cunt amazing
0: I also the other day somehow stumbled across an essay I had written in college about all of the lesbianism in the Sailor Moon cartoon <laughs> so you know what things were weird but you know what else just came to my mind huh remember when we would go to those Cinema classes on Saturday and just sleep through the whole thing? Oh my god,
1: yes. (laughs) I forgot about that. Why did we take those classes? We did have classes together. But that was on a Saturday. But there was a
0: reason for it. Why did we? I think we needed to make up credits, and so we picked up... I think that like, is what it was. It was like a long...
1: one-credit class.
0: It was like a 12-hour-long cinema class oh my... on a so Saturday.
1: I actually like just recently acquired my transcript. I can't even remember why, but I'm going to look back at it and try and like piece these stories together <laughs> of some of these weird classes we were in. i really... I'm curious to know what the Eleanor Roosevelt <laughs> essay I, was for.
0: I'm so happy that you brought that up. Because now that you mention it, I do remember that, and I remember you ended up getting a better I grade forgot than I forgot about that part,
1: and that's definitely. And you literally copied my
0: whole essay. I think I got like a C
1: plus, and you got like a B. I think that is. I think I might have got a B minus, but yeah, it was a C and B range. I remember. I do remember that. <laughs> You're like, the what the fuck?
0: Grade.
1: Cracked out all night and got the C, and I was just over there snoring in the dorm room. <laughs> Oh man! Oh man! Uh, well, listen, now we're stuff.
0: thirty and we're doing book reports, and <laughs> it's going well.
1: Who do we set? Sa- we should send this to whoever that teacher was that uh, gave us that assignment. Look at us now, ma. <laughs> Talking
0: about great women and great lives. so. Be like, And now you we're not guys. doing Adderall.
1: We're just drinking wine.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. How the world has turned full circle. Yes. Well,
1: that was really, really fun. I had the best <laughs> time ever.
0: Well, thank you for joining me. Thank you. I had fun. And that was the end of episode 36. <clears throat> boop, boop. Woo, woo! I'm almost a 40! <laughs> woo! That's so exciting! Maybe you should 40. have some champagne
1: for episode 40.
0: I know. You would think that this Sisterhood of the Bottomless Mimosa would ever have champagne, but... <laughs> Who wants
1: to drink champagne I didn't even think at about 9 that. o'clock at night? Yeah, I don't even like drinking mimosas in the morning. I mean, <laughs> like one mimosa, but I'd rather have a Bloody Mary or something. Or I just gotta... a glass of wine, a glass of rosé. I'd rather have an Irish coffee. Yeah, totally. Mimosas never do anybody good. <laughs> they really don't. There's a really
0: good meme on the internet that's like, anytime you start off with bottomless mimosas, you're texting a dude at oh. one in the afternoon saying, <laughs> you up? still up.
1: <laughs> I love those. Yes. Very accurate. Yes. <sighs> All right. All right. Well, signing off. Okay. That was awesome.
0: Well, we don't have to hang
1: up, but oh, um, stop okay. The recording. Okay. <laughs> Now, I just unmute myself, okay, <laughs> all right, thanks bye. for joining <laughs> bye.